Image and Ministry. Coming up next on The Balanced Word. Wake up my soul. Wake up early in the day. Wake up my hand. And the instrument I play. Wake up my voice. Let the world hear me say. You are worshipped and it's all to hear today. Welcome to The Balanced Word. Thanks for being with us today. Pastor Dave Rolf's series on the letters to the seven churches in Revelation continues with letter number four, the letter to Thyatira. Like several other churches, the Lord has something good to say. They were loving, faithful, growing, and serving, among other things. But there was something terrible going on in this church, too. Join us in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, as we hand things off to Pastor Dave. An important question for us to understand as believers in Jesus Christ is, what's the difference between other gods and our God? Like, why is the God of the Bible distinct from other religions and other (coughs) concepts of deity? A lot of times people ask us that question, and there are a lot of ways that you could respond to it, but I would say if I was going to reduce it down. Certainly the biggest difference between the God of the Bible and every other God. See, all gods are, you know, transcendent, meaning transcendent means you transcend reality. You're over and above and outside the realm of what we would consider to be our normal way of life. So by definition, a God should be transcendent. But the God of the Bible is also what we call eminent. Eminent means right here, right on top of you. It's like if it's eminent, it's here, it's happening at any second. And so the the difficulty of understanding a God who is both transcendent and eminent is obvious. How can you be other as a God would be, but at the same time be so close? But that's the God of the Bible, and there isn't any other God who is that way. And as a result, our God, the God of the Bible, the kinds of, the ways that he communicates, like for instance, he created the world in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Wow. But then he makes a person, and he physically breathes into him the breath of life. Such intimacy. And then, what kind of a God creates this beautiful world, and then he shows up on a daily basis with his creation and walks with them in the cool of the day. Let's take a walk in the garden. Right away in Genesis, you see, this is not a God like other gods. He's intimate. Obviously, eventually, as Christians, we know that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word, the one who without him, nothing else was made. And here he is, God with us, Emmanuel. And so, but it's also this transcendence and eminence is also seen in the kind of people that God chooses to reveal himself through that stand out as uniquely different from those in every other religion. It seems like God deliberately chooses people to represent him who are flawed, who are unimpressive, 
who aren't the people that we would have chosen. He loves choosing the simple things of the world to confound the wise, and it shows up in his representatives. Last Sunday, Justin shared with us from uh, Hebrews chapter 11 about Moses. Here's Moses, one of the greatest leaders in all of history for Yahweh, for the God of the Bible. He's a guy, first of all, he's like really old. Before he does anything meaningful, he's 80. And he's been a shepherd for the last 40 years. And he's married to a pagan. And he's, he talks funny. And he has no desire at all to be anyone. And he's arguing with God constantly. That's the guy you choose to lead your people? Yes, because there's something very real and something very eminent about using someone like him. Then in the Old Testament, you have David. Oh, he's the man after God's heart. David, the guy who, as a kid, they didn't even want him to participate in family stuff. He was that redheaded kid that was taking care of the sheep. And then as he grew up and he became king, it wasn't much better. He was a horrible father. He was a horrible husband. Like in so many ways, he was a failure. And what you see from reading his stuff, the guy was chronically depressed. Who would pick a chronically depressed person to represent God? That doesn't make sense, except that, wow, that's real. That's unusual. That's not a guy who would promote himself. That's not shtick. Nobody would have made that up. In fact, if you read through the Old Testament, almost every representative of God was depressed. And if you have a problem with that, Jesus is described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Ultimately, when he gets to Jesus as the ultimate expression of this transcendent, eminent God, that shocks you as well. He's born in a way that people were suspicious, like nobody knows who his dad is. And he was a guy who lived in a podunk town, and he, he surrounded himself with, I mean, his disciples were like some fishermen, one IRS guy, um, a, a zealot. Uh, it's like this assortment of losers that this is it. And the more Jesus talked, the less people followed him. Because it's like, okay, we liked when he was feeding everybody, but now he's said, you got to eat my body and drink my blood. I'm out of here. God revealed himself in his son in that way. That's typical of the people that God uses. Why? Because he wants you to realize this is real. This is not a show. Now, every other foreign god, their leaders were royalty. Their leaders were hype. Their leaders were the best and the brightest and acted like they were otherworldly and they were surrounded by wealth and success and you know, by you know, lackeys who would surround them and do all their will. That's the way gods who are only transcendent, that's the way they're represented. God's so big, I want you to see I'm big too and I represent him. The God of the Bible isn't that way at all. You, when you look at the disciples, the people that he used, again, like look at Paul who wrote half the, old, half the New Testament. 
14 books of the New Testament, Paul wrote, and he was a guy who, people didn't like him. The, there are people who mention in history, in extra-biblical history, that he was a very funny-looking guy, that he had a big nose and he was kind of ugly. Like, really? You're going to use that kind of a guy? We would never put that guy on TV unless it was, you know, to laugh at him. As far as that goes, Isaiah, talking about Jesus, said that, you know, he wasn't that good-looking. Now, I know that's a shock to you because when we see a movie about Jesus, he's like the best-looking guy in the room. But as Gail Irwin always says, why did they have to have Judas come and show him which one was Jesus? Because he just looks like a regular guy. But again, Isaiah 53, he goes, who would have ever believed it? He came up before him as a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men. So all along, that's the way it is. All along, every other religion emphasizes the transcendence and elevates people who look like transcendence, promote the best and the brightest and the greatest type to say, look it, really cool people follow our religion. That's a huge difference because the message that God wants to communicate is precisely the opposite of that. Now, we'll see it today as we look in Revelation chapter 2. We're going through the letters that Jesus wrote to these seven churches in Turkey. And before this, the first three were large, prominent cities. Ephesus, Smyrna, as then you come to Pergamos. It's like these are prominent places. Now the next one is a city called Thyatira. And it was the smallest of all these seven cities and really hasn't made a big dent in history at all. Thyatira was a crossroads. It was about 50 miles inland from Pergamos. And it was really on our, just a, it was in a valley and everyone went through there, but nobody went there. Nobody's like, okay, let's go to Thyatira. They're like, I'm going to go to Thyatira on my way to Pergamos. It's kind of like Fresno, you know, it's you don't actually go to Fresno. You go through Fresno. You might stop at the McDonald's before you drive up into the Sierras. But So Thyatira was a working class town. It was actually the biggest industrialized for that era because all of the trades were there. Remember reading about Lydia in Philippi who was a seller of purple, which was their big flashy fashion statement at the time. Paul and Silas met her in Philippi, and she was converted to Christ. But it says that she was from Thyatira. We know from archaeology that the city of Thyatira had all these basically legal, these unions, industrial unions, where there was a leather workers guild, there was a seller of purples guild, there were other furniture guilds. They just made stuff there. And the city was destroyed. If you go there today, there's like, there's nothing interesting archaeologically at all. They I mean, they've dug, what, they dig and dig and dig, and they found like alleys with warehouses. It's just not impressive. And yet Jesus is addressing specifically the church that's in this town of Thyatira. And, it, and so it's definitely interesting, and some of the things in it are certainly unique. So in verse 18... 
Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write. Now again, as we've said before, angel means messenger. These could be messengers or most likely most theologians say that they were like the leaders, the pastor of the church because certainly messenger is a pretty good pretty good reference to the person who's teaching in the church. So to that person, these things says the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. He sees and he kicks. <laughs> you know, it's like his eyes can burn right through you. He's, let, he's taking part of this description from Revelation chapter 1, this vision of the glorified Jesus. But he's saying, I want you to understand. I know what's going on. I see what's going on. I see beneath the surface of everything that's going on, and I'm stepping in with brass on my feet. I'm dealing with this. So, ooh, okay. And he starts out, as with most of the letters, I know your works. That is, I know what you do. But he's really, and in Thyatira, as with most of the other churches, he tells them something good, tells them something bad, tells them something good, but you know he actually wrote it to tell you something bad. He just threw the good stuff in. But this is pretty good. I know your works. I know your love. In Ephesus, their problem was they had works, but they were losing their first love. He goes, you guys are truly loving. I see it. Your service. You're all involved in ministry. Your faith. You really believe. Your patience. You hang in there when things get difficult. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. You're feeling pretty good if you're Thyatira at this point. He's going, I see what you're doing. You're loving. You're faithful. You're working hard. And you know what? You're actually getting better. What you're doing now is better than what you used to be doing. Where with Ephesus, it's like you guys used to be loving, and now you're not. With Thyatira, he's like, I see what you're doing, and it's awesome. You're getting even better. However, and this was awkward, I'm sure, for them, I have a few things against you. And the few things are really one thing, because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. The Greek word there for woman, gune, is a word that also is translated wife. Most of the ancient translations of this passage rendered it your wife. So it could be some other woman, but it's possibly as he's talking to the pastor, this could be the pastor's wife whether it's his wife or a woman. Now, doesn't it seem strange that not just a woman teaching in the church, this is the only example of it in the New Testament, but teaching and seducing my servants, leading them away to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. How can a church that's so healthy be having someone teaching them to sacrifice to idols and that it was okay to be sexually immoral and why in the world do you need Jesus to tell you that's not a good sermon you should take that off your webpage when she speaks on that topic well it's highly unlikely that a woman was in a church that's this solid in there in Thyatira 
who's literally telling people that you can go commit fornication and it's fine, and that certainly you are able to worship idols. That's, that's kind of far-fetched that, for, for one thing, that it would happen in a good church, but even more so that you'd have to mention it. That you'd have to go, by the way, there's just this one thing. Now, these terms are used often in scripture to speak metaphorically. Quite often, when it, even uh, the word fornication, pornaya, it's a word that at its root means to sell. So you would use this term to refer, in a sense, he's saying, she's leading you to sell out. It is probably closer to maybe what he was really sharing. And the idea of idolatry, there are a lot of different kinds of idolatry. Idolatry always, it is not about the particular idols. People don't worship little stone things. People worship these transcendent concepts of deity that are represented by graven images. They're, those idols are made in the image of the creator in the same way that we are made in the image of God. So what I'm suggesting is perhaps that, and you know, you can disagree with me, it's fine, but this seems more plausible that this woman is speaking in this church and maybe she's even saying good things, but there's something about the way she is presenting it that causes them to sell out, that causes them to make compromises, that causes them to do exactly the opposite of what a follower of an eminent God would do. They are trying to become relevant. And some of the other, they're the smallest city of all these seven cities, so it's like, come on. We need to do the things that other people are doing. We have a world that we need to compete with. We need to find God, you know, ways that we can capture the modern technology and technology and the methods in order to make ourselves more attractive. If that was, in fact, the message, you could see how they would fall for it. You could also see how it's something that God would say, that is not what I'm about. I am about carrying a true message of an eminent God. And I communicate that in particular ways. And I don't want you to get the idea that putting somebody in there who's flashier and more appealing and who actually herself becomes kind of an idol, because really Jezebel in 1 Kings, and the other thing about, about this woman is she calls herself a prophetess. She's self-anointed. She promoted herself. Just as Jezebel in, in 1 Kings, her husband Ahab was king, but she moved in and took over with power, and she led him around, and she ultimately, I mean, she was a horrible nightmare for Elijah and putting hits out on him and everything else, but it was all in the name of, I'm doing what's best for Israel. I mean, so you can see using her image as a reminder. It's just like this, just like Jezebel, you elevated yourself and you are promoting something that runs completely contrary to what God is actually doing. You have the true 
prophet of God who is saying, God's upset, it's not going to rain for three and a half years, and, or it's not going to rain until I say so, and you're like, no, that's not right. In fact, I'm going to kill that guy, and then it'll rain. So in this case, this Jezebel is coming into the church and is saying things that are different than what God is actually wanting to say in a way that contradicts what he does. And the ultimate sacrifice is you may enhance transcendence of God, but you lose the eminence because he is no longer being represented in a way that he desires to be represented. Thanks for joining us today for The Balanced Word with our pastor and Bible teacher, Dave Rolfe. We're developing a series on the seven churches of Revelation. And stay with us for more teaching from Pastor Dave. These programs are available by podcast at thebalancedword.com. You can also call us and request a CD copy at 949-362-7475. We'd also like to offer you Pastor Dave's Through the Bible in a Year series on a USB thumb drive for a gift of $25 or more. Go through the Bible in a year with Dave by ordering this special series today. Again, call 949-362-7475 or go to thebalancedword.com. Your gifts help to make these shows possible on stations like this one all across the nation. Thank you for standing with us with either a one-time gift or ongoing monthly support. Donations can be made at thebalancedword.com. Have you had a chance to listen to Pastor Dave's one-minute messages? You can listen to those at thebalancedword.com and even join our mailing list so you can have them delivered to you each day. You can also watch them on Instagram or Facebook by following CC Pacific Hills. We'd love for you to join us at Pacific Hills Calvary Chapel. Our service times on Sunday morning are at 8, 9.45 and 11.30. Directions and more information about the church can be found online at ccpacifichills.org. And you can watch our live stream there too ccpacifichills.org. Can we pray for you? Just contact us through thebalancedword.com and leave a prayer request. Or again, call 949-362-7475. Let's get back to our Bible study. Again, we're in Revelation chapter 2, focusing on the letter to Thyatira. He goes on, Jesus goes on and says, I gave her time to repent of her fornication of her selling out. She's a sellout. I gave her time to repent. Now, again, if she was literally having sexual relations with everybody in the church, can't imagine him going, I gave her time. (laughs) So obviously it's something more than that. She did not change her mind. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. And again, not literally committing adultery with her. She sold out, talked them into selling out, unless they repent of their deeds. I'll kill her children with death. That's pretty severe. I mean, I kill your children kind of covers death, but he throws that in. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. That's another indication of what he's talking about. He doesn't say, I am going to destroy her so that every other church will know not to commit fornication and not to worship idols. But it's the idea with his piercing eyes, I see your heart. What's going on is something here that's going on in the heart. And he says, I'm going to destroy it because I see what's happening 
underneath the surface. I see what's happening behind your, your good talk and your celebrity. And, but he says, I, I search it. I'll give to each one according to your works. Now, to you, I say, most of you, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, not this immoral practice, as many as don't fall into this teaching, who have not known the depths of Satan. The depths of Satan. What a, what a phrase. How would you describe the depth of Satan? Like, Satan at his core is what? Well, I would suggest to you that, you know, when you read the Bible, you find out that the depths of Satan is the pride that made the devil the devil, as C.S. Lewis says. Lewis calls pride the mother of all sins because pride is what made the devil the devil. Every other sin is minor, and every other sin happens because it started with the depths of Satan. That's why Jesus could talk to the Pharisees and say, you are of your father, the devil. You're following his pattern. He wasn't saying that, you know, they got possessed at a rock concert. He's saying that pride that's the most evil, destructive force in the universe is what's making you who you are. More about image and ministry coming up next time on The Balanced Word with Dave Roth. This program is brought to you by Pacific Hills Calvary Chapel. Wake up my soul. Wake up.